and verses 1 to 12, and it can be found on page 1218 of our church Bibles. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious stone, cornerstone, and the one who puts his trust in me will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, I would just like to say about those video notices, however you, normal you are, they make you look very odd, so I hope you find Alpha very stimulating. <laughs> but let's face it, I didn't look as odd as Josh did. I thought Becky came across quite normal. You were, you were really off the chart unusual. Anyway, <laughs> we'll pray for him later. Um, so, uh, when I got this passage, I initially thought, oh, brilliant, and then I read it again and again and again, and I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to talk about? There's like a million different things that you could talk about. So, what I'm going to do is just pick one theme that I believe underpins the entire pack passage, um, and that is um, transformation. And to illustrate this and help pick points out so that we can remember them in all true sermon style, I've picked five pithy points. My first one's rather long and not at all pithy, but I'm still calling it a pithy point. Go with me. 
My first point is, if we're going to complete our transformation in Christ, we need to resist the temptation to live as if nothing's actually happened. Because the moment we invite the Spirit into our lives, we are completely and utterly transformed. I don't know about you, but I um, rather love watching television. Um, I particularly enjoy a program called DIY SOS. Hands up if you've seen DIY SOS. Shame on you. <laughs> it's not as bad as the one I'm going to talk about later. But anyway, um, for those of you who have never seen the program, it's a makeover program. Um, Nick Knowles and his team go to a family who are in a desperate situation and living in a house that is impossible for them. And he goes to the neighborhood and gets the friends, neighbors, families, and the trades to come and help for free do a makeover on their house. And it's a really brilliant program. And at the end of the program is the bit that I really enjoy because they go into each room and they show you a picture of how it was before the makeover. And it looks pretty appalling, sort of bits of falling off the wall and whatever. And then they do the new made-over look and it looks all springy, cleany, perfect. And um, then they get the family who've been sent away during the makeover to come back and have a look at the house. And they're always absolutely agog. They're like, I can't even recognize it. And they're, you know, crying. And then like, I can't believe it. It's, you don't understand how much it's going to change my life. My life will never be the same again. I'll tell you that, partly because it's a nice um, program to tell you about, but partly because in verses 1 to 3, um, Peter's doing pretty much the same thing. In verse one, he's showing them a picture of how things used to be before they came to faith. Then, theirs was a life full of malice and guile, insecurity, envy, and slander. But since then, Peter's pointing out, the Holy Spirit has moved into their hearts and given them a transformational makeover, much like the house on DIY SOS. Therefore, Peter encourages them to rid themselves of the remaining rubbish that used to fill their lives. Rather than going back to old habits, he urges them that they should be pressing into the new, and they should be yearning to be filled with the Holy Spirit with the same intensity that a newborn baby yearns for her mother's milk, because they know from personal experience of their initial encounter with God that the Holy Spirit is good. Now, you'd think this uh, advice would be unnecessary. Once they'd tasted that God's, God's presence, why on earth would they go, want to go back to their old life? But sadly, there's a true temptation of the old and the familiar. It's like a dirty old skanky armchair, well used and warm, that's dragged into the sitting room that's just been made over. And we too can be tempted to bring the old familiar but unclean habits into our new lives, in our transformed, pristine, clean lives. And in this passage, Peter's trying to explain that this behavior is both inappropriate and damaging. So that's my first pithy point. If we're going to complete our transformation in Christ, we need to resist the temptation to live as if nothing has actually changed. But I might subtitle that, don't drag your skanky old armchair into your spring clean sitting room. Okay, pithy point number two, brace, brace. 
If we're going to complete our transformation, we need to find a group of people to stand side by side with. In verses four to eight, Peter tries to explain the new, the new reality again, but this time he tries a different metaphor. This time he speaks to them not as babies, but as living stones. When he calls them living stones, he does so because astonishing as their makeover is, it is not complete yet. But by drawing closer to Jesus and being filled with the Spirit, they will continue to grow in holiness, becoming ever more like the one on whom their life is founded, Jesus. And as each living stone draws closer to Christ, they also inadvertently grow closer to one another until they form one united holy building, each living stone taking its place side by side with the next. Now, this is going to be interesting for you. I'm going to tell you about the only history lesson I remember. Uh, history was not my greatest subject. Actually, I didn't have a really great subject, but let's not mention that. Um, so, what I want to talk to you about is the Roman army when they first arrive. So, um, prior to the Roman army arriving, as I remember it, the uh, British army, the policy used to be prior to war, practice a lot, build up your muscles and skills. Excellent. Next, before you go into battle, boof up your hair so you can make yourself seem as tall and frightening as possible and paint yourself all over with paint. And next, number three, do the best you can. If you're big and strong, or if you can run away very quickly. Then the Romans came along and they transformed the fighting strategy. They started off with the same plan. They also took a lot of time to practice their skills and build up their muscles. But instead of a every man for himself policy, they had a more unique team policy. They built themselves some shields. The shields were the same size as their bodies. And they would stand side by side with each other, making an impenetrable wall that would just head towards the others. It was fantastic, and nobody could get through the wall to attack them. Everyone in the unit was safe as long as no gaps appeared. In effect, they were as strong as the weakest member. This meant that the soldiers were trained to work as a team, supporting each other through thick and thin, and they became the force to be reckoned with, as the history maps will tell you. And that's what we discover in this passage. As Christians, we form the temple of the Lord, each stone being set side by side with its neighbor. There are no such things as solitary stones in a temple. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we're called to work like the Roman army, not the Anglo-Saxon one. So stop boofing up your hair. Except for me, because I quite like boofing up my hair, actually. Whether we realize it or not, we desperately need to be part of a close unit who will support each other through prayer, through encouragement, through prophecy, through wisdom, and through acts of service. This isn't a new teaching. This is what has always been the case. If we look at Peter's life, who wrote this, Peter himself, when he was thrown into jail, was being prayed for by his unit. 
And when he miraculously got freed from jail, he went straight back to his unit to get encouragement, prayer, and wisdom. Anybody who has had the privilege of being part of a unit like that can tell you that it is life-changing. Before I came to Guildford, I was part of a unit like that. The unit consisted of four other women, all of whom were transformed as a result of this group. In this group, we each agreed that the main focus of our meeting was supposed to be discipleship and calling. And at each session, we would report on our progress and we would challenge and encourage one another and pray for one another. As a direct result of us listening to God for one another, praying for, into our calling, two of us have become ordained. And one, who was extremely young at the time, was promoted to become a headmistress of a school. And she's turned that round from a failing school to a successful school. One of them was a psychi consultant psychiatry in the psychiatrist in the NHS, and she gave up the security of that job to introduce a new um, parenting course into the, this country, and that course has transformed lives. And the last lady in the group was a single lady, and she was incredibly gifted, amazingly, both um, in Christian prophetic skills, but also um, in her secular work. And, but she was very unhappy because the job that she had didn't really use many of her skills. And she was also sad because she hadn't managed to find a, a partner in life, which was um, a great concern of hers. As we prayed, we all felt that she had been called to go to Australia. But you can imagine as a single woman to go to the other side of the world, it's an enormous risk. But as the weeks went past, the, we got more and more convinced that this is what God was asking her to do. And finally, through a lot of prayer and encouragement, she packed her bags and left. When, within a year of arriving, she had met the man of her dreams and was married. And she had found the most extraordinary job, of which I haven't seen one like that in this country, which used every skill she had. When we really focus on what it is we're made for, the purpose that God has called in our lives. When we pray into it and encourage each other, when we stand by each other and we cheer each other on, God uses that. I, can, I haven't got time to tell you about the group and how much impact it had, not just on their lives, but on my lives. I can tell you I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for that group. If you're not in a group like that, you really need to consider getting in one because that is the best way of fulfilling everything that God has called you to be. So, let's recap my pithy points. One, we, if we're going to complete our transformation, we need to resist the temptation to live as if nothing has happened, or don't drag your skanky armchair into your sitting room. Point number two, if we're going to be, complete our transformation, we need to find a group of people to stand side by side with. Or, don't boof up your hair, get your shields lined up. Point number three, if you are going to complete your transformation, you need to take up your new identity in Christ and fully embrace your God-given purpose. In verse nine, Peter goes back to speak about the radical makeover these new believers have just received, including a new identity and a new purpose. As regards their identity, their country, 
their job, their gender, their age, their race, no longer define them because they're no longer citizens of this world, subject to its evaluation. The moment they came to faith, they were adopted into God's kingdom and took on a new identity, that of a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So I want you to think about that. This is what God speaks over you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. As regards their new purpose, as subjects of the kingdom of God, believers are under his rule, and they are, they are called to declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful life, through the way they live their lives. The exact form that a calling takes varies from person to person for each person is uniquely crafted with a specific kingdom-building role in mind. And let me be clear, when I say everybody has a calling on their life, I certainly don't mean everybody's called to come and work for the church. All our callings are as different as our fingerprints. Your calling may be to bake cakes, build, build roads, write books, or manufacture paper butterflies. Each is equally valid. No one calling is better than the other. So if you're called to stay at home and be a parent or work in a bank or be an estate agent or work in a law firm, God bless you. Do not think of it as a lesser calling. Go into it with all your vim and vigor, knowing that if you are in your calling, if you are submitted to God's will and under his direction, his kingdom will enter your field of work. After all, if everybody worked in the church, who on earth would tell the people in the city that God loves them? It isn't where we work that matters, it's how we work. Myself, I became a Christian as the direct result of watching a documentary about Jackie Pullinger. I think you're getting a little bit of an idea about my television watching. Anyway, she was a young woman at the time and a new Christian, and she left the UK to live in the walled city an area of great deprivation on the border between Hong Kong and China, which has since been bulldozed. Hands up if you've heard about Jackie Pullinger. Not half of you. Anyway, if you haven't, I suggest you read her book, Chasing the Dragon. So exciting. Um, anyway, the, the um, walled city was run by the Triads, who are the mafia, and was um, run full of heroin dens and prostitution. And not even the police would go in there on their own. They'd only go if they went with an entire unit. But Jackie felt called that she had to go in that area and pray for people. And as a result of her ministry, thousands of men and women have come off heroin through prayer alone and have seen their lives transformed. Now, when I was watching that program, I wasn't a Christian. In spite of the fact that I come from a church-going family and had been taken to church every single week, you see, my problem with Christianity, as I saw it at that point in time, is that faith didn't seem to make any difference. I couldn't see any difference in the lives of the people who were in the church from those who were outside of the church. They were all very nice people, there was nothing wrong with them, but there was nothing extraordinary about them either. And it seemed to me that if we have an all-powerful, all-loving God, being in relationship with him must surely make a difference. So my conclusion was, Christianity was wishful thinking, invented to make us feel better about life here on earth. 
Jackie's life, however, was different. She seemed to declare the praises of him who called us out of the darkness into his wonderful light in everything that she said and in everything that she did. To me, what I saw on that documentary was like watching the next chapter in the Bible. She spoke with confidence about a God she knew personally and the miracles she had seen as the result of her prayer. Her transformation was self-evident. And that's why that documentary stopped me in my tracks and led me on a search for a living faith. It was Jackie who first introduced me to a kingdom-focused life, but it could just as easily have been my friend Paul, who heads up a financial investment company in the city and considers his company to be like a church and his financial investors to be his congregation. They invest in micro startups across some of the poorest parts of Africa. Through his faithfulness, both those in the city and those in Africa have come to know God. Or it could have been my friend Alex, a corporate banker, who wasn't afraid to talk about her faith in work. When Alex or a non-Christian colleague was struggling with a debilitating skin condition, she offered to pray for them in spite of the fact that that would not have been looked upon well in her, in her company. She laid hands on them and prayed for them, saw them healed and come to faith. Or it could have been my friend Hanel, who was a young mum. She started up a small dance class in the estate near where she lived. And several of the mums in that, of the children in that group came to faith. You see, being agents of transformation isn't dependent on our circumstances or on our calling, but on who we're taking our directions from and whose agenda we're pursuing. We can have a powerful impact for God's glory whether we find, wherever we find ourselves, whether it's at home or at work, as long as we're intentionally fulfilling our purposes. Okay. So we're now ready for pithy point number four. But before we do that, I'm going to give you a recap. Pithy point number one. If we're going to complete our transformation, we need to resist the temptation to live as, nothing, as if nothing has changed. Or don't drag your skanky old armchair into your swish new sitting room. Point number two. If you're going to complete your transformation, you need to find a group of people to stand side by side with. Or don't boof up your hair and get your shield in line. Point number three. If you're going to complete your transformation, you need to take up your new identity in Christ and fully embrace your God-given purpose. Or flaunt your new identity card in Christ. My fourth pithy point is this. If you're going to complete your transformation, you should expect opposition. Living out our new identity and fulfilling our purposes can be easier said than done, as they are both actively contested by our enemy, who has an entirely different agenda for our lives and will, who, who will do everything he can to distract and dishearten us. Have you ever watched I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here? <laughs> you haven't. There's only one person who's prepared to admit that publicly. I'm a, celebrity, uh, uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here is a program which has many challenges which the contestants have to face. Right at the end of the program is my favorite. It is one where there is a large plastic sheeting that is put over a hill, a steep incline, and at the top of the hill there is a water cannon. 
The hill has many lumps and bumps and obstacles, and they have to make their way up the hill to their target to um, win. So to start off with, what happens is the water's gently flowing down the hill, and it looks pretty much as if the plastic sheeting is pretty slippery, but they make some headway, and it's great. That is until the point the water cannon is turned on them, and they are blasted back to the point at which they started. But after a time, they get used to the water cannon, and they start to make progress. And they're doing very well until coming on from the side of great inflatable balls that are lanced at them. And you watch them struggle determinedly to get to the target. And it's definitely not a done deal that they will get there. But in fact, you'll be relieved to hear this year they did. Anyway, the reason I tell you that is not to get you watching rubbish TV programs. <laughs> Um, but to tell you that I believe the Christian journey is a little like that. We may start out well, and from time to time, we even may feel a sense of God's favor on our lives. But sooner or later, we'll begin to feel that it's being chipped away. We might find that the enemy has turned his cannon on us because he's determined to get us to retreat in any way he can. He's going to put all his energy he can into taking us out. He may try to blow us out of the water with a broken relationship or a financial disaster. He may try to sideswipe us with illness or take us down, as verse 11 suggests, with desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul, or with shame, or as verse 12 warns, by maligning us um, through evildoers. Whatever his technique, the battle is very real because whether we realize it or not, we are agents of transformation. And he knows the further we step into God's purpose for our lives, the more the kingdom of God is expanding and the further his grip on the world is diminished. He hates any progress you make, but the whole of heaven is cheering you on. And this brings me to my fifth and final point. If we're going to complete our transformation, we need the Holy Spirit. If we are to complete our mission impossible, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the prize, we need courage, determination, we need friends, but above all, we need the pure spiritual milk of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God, and as such, we are designed to be the place where God's Spirit dwells. Without him, we would no longer be living stones, growing ever more like our precious and chosen cornerstone. We would instead be dead stones, incapable of inner transformation and unable to fulfill our purposes. The Apostle Peter, who wrote this book, only really started his calling after having been filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. And if you read Jackie Pullinger's book, Chasing the Dragon, you too will discover that her incredible ministry only began once she'd been filled with the Spirit. As human beings, we're like mechanical toys that run on batteries, and we come with the label, battery not included. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to function. Is the Holy Spirit alone who empowers our Christian lives? Without him, we have nothing to offer. And like all battery powers, we will need recharging from time to time. Being filled with the Spirit isn't a one-off operation. It is an ongoing and constant necessity. 
As Ephesians 5 verse 18 makes clear, we need to be filled and keep on being filled with the Spirit if we're going to be transformed and keep on being transformed until we reach the end of our lives. When we come to faith, everything changes. Our old, broken lives are replaced by a glorious new reality, and eternity enters our hearts. Our challenge as Christians is to ensure that our transformation that started when we first prayed that prayer does not stop, but continues throughout our lives, so that all that, sorry, so that all that we say and all that we do proclaims the excellences of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So my final recap. Don't drag your skanky old chair into your swish new sitting room. Don't boof up your hair, line up your shields. Flaunt your new identity cards in Christ. Watch out for the water cannons and put your battery in your temple. I think it'd be good to pray about that because it's easy to get so caught up in life we don't have the time to recharge so let's spend some time now just asking God first of all Lord I want